Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hi, Skylight listeners. I'm Amy Meyerson, author of the new novel, The Imperfects. I'm so excited to share with you a conversation that I had with the jewelry specialist at Sotheby's, Quig Bruning. Uh, We talked about my new novel, The Imperfects. So just to give you a little bit of background before we get started with the conversation, The Imperfects is about the dysfunctional Miller family who, when the novel begins, they haven't seen each other for about six years. And they all convene at their grandmother's house after she passes away. And so while they're there, they discover this uh, mysterious brooch that she's left to them. And they soon realize it has something called the Florentine diamond in it, which is a real diamond. It's 137 carats and it's been missing since 1918. It was part of the Austrian crown jewels. So the Millers have no idea how their grandmother had this diamond and they don't know if it legally belongs to them and they have to sort of uncover some things about the diamond to to discover if it is theirs and along the way they find out some uh, secrets about their grandmother that change their lives and relationships to each other. Uh, so it's, a, it's fun, it's fast paced, it's a family mystery and it has a lot about history and a lot specifically about the history of historic gemstones, which is what Quig and I talked about. So I am reaching you from Silver Lake, not Los Angeles, not too far from Skylight. I'm sitting at my desk right now and my desk looks out to our avocado tree, which is pretty and but probably sounds a little more romantic than it is. The tree is about 50 years old, so it doesn't really produce avocados anymore which uh, was very disappointing to discover when we moved in. Uh, While I've been at home, like the rest of us, I've been cooking a lot. Uh, I love to cook, but I definitely am a proponent of recipes. So a few favorites that I've found during quarantine. I recently made these cookies from the New York Times. They're rye cookies with poppy seeds, chocolate chips, and cranberries. And I thought they sounded just bizarre enough that they had to be delicious, and I was right. Uh, There is a lot of butter in them, so I think that that might be the secret ingredient. Uh, I've also been making some flatbreads. I really love Smitten Kitchen, if you don't know Smitten Kitchen, and she has this flatbread with butternut squash that has been a quarantine staple in our household. So I hope that you're all doing well and staying safe, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. It sounds so official. This meeting is being recorded. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, 
I have to tell you, and I, I said since my email to you, I really enjoyed the book. Um, and of course, the whenever there was a jewelry section, I felt like I really was paying attention to what was actually being said. Um, but the family interactions were the most, I think, I don't know if they were intentionally comedic in some instances, but the, the parts that I enjoyed the most. Um, and, and I'm just curious, like, was this what your family was like growing up? Yeah, not really. I, I think what I said in another interview, well, first of all, thank you. Um, it means a lot to me that, that you liked the book and that you read it. Um, <clears throat> my family tends to be more passive aggressive than aggressive. So uh, it was, you know, I think, I think some of the back and forth between, I mean, I only have one sibling, but the back and forth between the siblings and the way that allegiances shift in family, I could certainly borrow from my own family, but we are a lot less direct than the Millers were. And uh, actually some of the fight scenes were the most fun ones to write. Um, I did, I did want to put a little comedy into this book. So I'm glad that you thought it was funny. And the other person, the, the character that I really enjoyed and that obviously was crafted in kind of a, a secondhand kind of way was Helen. Um, what was, how did you create this character of Helen? I thought she sounded like this amazingly complex, sort of tough grandmother, but also super loving at the same time. Yeah, so for any listeners um, who don't know, so Helen is the grandmother in The Imperfects. Uh, she, when the book uh, begins, she has just passed away and her three grandchildren and daughter uh, come to her house to sit Shiva and that's where they, they find this brooch that uh, leads them on their journey. And, you know, I, I'm really interested in, my last book had this as well, in characters that are off the page, um, particularly family members. So I think it, you know, I think with Helen is a, a little bit, her story is very different, but her character is a little bit based on my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother, she was a professor in the 50s when women weren't really professors and um, her family uh, before the depression owned a uh, chain of department stores in Pennsylvania and then they lost everything. So she had this really, really rich life that I never understood, nor if I'm being honest, really asked her about. And that's kind of stayed with me um, in the years, she passed about 15 years ago. So I, I think with Helen, I was thinking about that a lot, about the ways we can and can't know older generations of our family, um, and also the ways, I guess, we don't really try until it's too late. And uh, I, I also read, so she's a Holocaust survivor, and my family is Jewish, but uh, they came over before the Holocaust. Um, but so I read a lot about people's relationships with their family members who survived the Holocaust, and there was a lot of for obvious reasons, not talking about it, um, but also it, it created kind of this uh, emotional dichotomy, I think, that, that Helen has, where she's both loving, but there's also this closed element to her. It's funny, I, as you're talking about this, I was just thinking this interaction I had once with this woman who, she was a, a child in Poland during World War II, and while her family wasn't Jewish, obviously Poland was not exactly a great place to be for anybody. And her brother had been captured by the Nazis, went to a prisoner of war camp, he escaped, went back to France, joined the French army, fought the Nazis, died. 
she and her mother came over under kind of interesting circumstances. And she was telling me a story and I'm just enraptured by it. And I said, how have you not written a book about this? And she said, well, who would care? These stories are a dime a dozen. And the perpetuation of these stories is so important. And I don't feel like this generation realizes how extraordinary that time was. Yeah. Um, it's funny because uh, in, in the not, not funny, but sort of similar in my novel, there's a little bit of story about uh, the, uh, Jake, one of the siblings, uh, girlfriends, his, her mother uh, escaped from China. Um, and it was based on my sister-in-law's mother's story very loosely. And when she told me her story, which is just this incredible story of, of, of escaping from, from China, um, you know, I said to her, you should write this down. And her response was like, oh no, you know, that, that was everybody's story. Uh, and so it's, you know, it, maybe there's something about when you've suffered that kind of trauma, it, it makes you feel better to know that other people have gone through it. I don't know, but yeah, there's this, I mean, that was one of the things I was interested in, in general, is this idea of the significance of stories and who gets to tell what story. Um, and I guess perhaps also why people who've had these incredible stories might not think they're worth telling and, and keeping alive. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that, that, that kind of shared almost responsibility. I, don't, I wonder if that does give one in these amazingly tragic moments, this sense of, when you normalize it, it almost kind of makes it a little less personal maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's something that I, I certainly have never experienced. Um, I'm, so I, I've, one thing I was thinking about as I was reading the book and finishing the book, and I don't want to give away what happens in the book, but when Helen I, I don't think I'm giving away too much by saying Helen bequeaths a brooch to Beck. Uh, and the way the family ends up coming together around this piece, do you think that was Helen's intent? Or did Helen just give the brooch to Beck and say, kind of, you figure it out? I think she had a lot of faith. So Beck is the youngest of the three siblings and the grandchildren. And I think she had a, a, lot, a lot more faith in, in Beck than Beck has in herself and that either of her uh, siblings have in her. Um, I, sh I, I think that with Helen, she, you know, this, this brooch enables the family to investigate their past and uh, is the catalyst for that. And I think she knew in leaving it to Beck that that was what was going to happen and that hopefully they were going to uncover some stories that she was never able to tell them. So I think that she always, which, which Beck understands too, because she was the closest to her grandmother, Helen. I think she, even though she left it alone to her, I think she always expected her to share it, particularly when she discovered how valuable the brooch is. The um, brooch has the Florentine diamond in it, which actually you told me would probably sell for about $10 million. So, uh, so I think, you know, I think it's an opportunity, the family that when the novel begins, they haven't seen each other in six years. And uh, there's, there's a real estrangement and hostility between the family members. And so I, I think that Helen sees this as her way of bringing them back together again. And do you think, well, uh, sorry, I guess I'd be giving away the ending if I asked you that next question. Um, <laughs> so uh, let me ask, because like I said, you know, for me, being a jewelry specialist at Sotheby's, the, that part 
the jewelry component was the most interesting, uh, not interesting, but the, the one that I can relate to the most. How, how did this become the story that you wanted to tell with the Florentine and with the family discovering a piece? Yeah, so I, um, for years, I've done metalsmithing as a hobby. So I just, I work in silver. I don't work in it anymore because I have a child and whatever free time I have goes to writing. But <clears throat> um, I, I work in, I've, I've worked in silver and semi-precious stones. But in the process of doing that, I learned a lot about metal and a lot about gemstones whenever I've gone to museums, um, you know, Smithsonian or something like I always want to see the Hope Diamond or whatever incredible incredible jewels are there. Uh, so I've sort of had a general interest in in gemology and then I, I'm also a big lover of history. So I've had this idea of wanting to write about a stone for a long time and the way they get passed down. Uh, I, I kind of stumbled upon the Florentine diamond. So once I had decided that I wanted to write about a missing stone, I honestly just Googled famous missing stones and I, <laughs> yeah, um, people are surprised when I say that, uh, but you know, there's, Google is a very, very resourceful in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> but I just found that once I started to read a little bit about the Florentine, I found it really interesting because it's history, it's documented history is very short, especially for the lifespan of a stone. So it, you know, in the mid, we know definitively that in the mid 17th century, it belonged to the Medicis. And then we know in 1918, when it belonged to the Habsburgs, it went missing. And so both before uh, the 1650s and after uh, 19, 1918, the, there's not any confirmable facts about the stone. In 1918, it went, it went missing from the Habsburg empire and it has never been seen again. And so there's, there's theories of what happened to it, but I liked all this uncertainty around it. And then on top of that, the Habsburgs thought it was cursed. Uh, Marie Antoinette wore it. Uh, Empress Cece, who was Franz Joseph's wife, I don't think she was wearing it when she was murdered, but she wore it and then was murdered. So the Habsburgs, you know, thought that it, it carried all these, these bad omens, so none of them wanted to wear it. So I liked that kind of lore. And there's just, yeah, there's so much surrounding this diamond uh, that seemed really interesting. And when I started looking into it, there wasn't that much in, in popular culture. It hadn't really appeared that there's like one French movie, but uh, so that was the only thing really in popular culture that I found. And it's not at all about the Florentine. It's more about uh, stealing a stone from a place like Sotheby's. But it's, it's funny the way you describe it. I mean, it, people imbue, and this is thing that I, I've learned in my job is that people imbue these histories in the stones and yeah, there, there is something to be said for that. And you, you talked about the, the Medici family and the, the coolest diamond that I've ever held in my hands. And as far as I'm concerned, we've sold at Sotheby's was we sold the, the Beausanti diamond, which was the wedding gift from, and I, if I get the history wrong, I apologize to any of your listeners who are very, who are more knowledgeable about, about French history than am I, but it was the wedding gift from Henry IV to Marie de Medici. And the story was, and whether this is true or apocryphal, I, I, I don't know, but that the, the Sancy diamond existed already and it was this legendary diamond in France. And you know, in the 17th century, 
these diamonds were all principally coming from India and they were coming over on trade routes from India. And Maria de Medici being Catholic had been set up with Henry IV, who was Protestant. And she wasn't thrilled about this marriage. And she said that if I'm going to marry you, I'm insisting that you give me the Beausancy diamond, which was the, the twin sister to the Sancy, as my wedding gift. And lo and behold, he did. Um, and then it, it passed on from generation to generation. And, you know, before I hopped on this, this call with you, I was just making sure I had some of my facts right. And what's interesting is the, the history of it is not dissimilar from what you described for the Florentine, where you have this initial flurry of information. So you know it is with this person at this time. And then you kind of have these little trickles of information as they go down from family member to family member until it ends up with the Duke of something or the Count of whatever. And then they own it. And it's, it's really interesting because, and I wonder if part of it's just because of the, the turmoil that happened in Europe between the, the 18th and you know, through the 19th centuries, where you just, things just kind of scatter to the winds until they end up back in one person's collection. Yeah, well, and so pretty much what one of the um, art uh, lawyers I talked to told me that almost everything passed through the Medici's hands at some point. So whenever there's a contest over uh, cultural heritage and rightful ownership, that, that Italy always lays a claim to it, which I found <laughs> interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that, that you taught me pretty early on, because when I started researching this book, I got connected to you in Sotheby's fairly quickly. And then later, which I think I told you, I, I talked to a bunch of people at the Gemological Institute of America. But one of the thing, one of the first things that you told me that really informed the book was the difference between the worth of a diamond or as a diamond versus as a piece of history. And uh, I assume it, it's probably the same with other diamonds that you've sold, but I found that so interesting with the Florentine that as a diamond, it it's really big, but it's a kind of an ugly yellow diamond. But what makes it worth a lot more money is the fact that it passed through so many famous people's hands and has such rich story to it. Well, the, and the, the best example I have of that, which was, I think, after um, you and I met, maybe it was before, but in any case, we sold Marie Antoinette's pearl. And wow. in basically every portrait of Marie Antoinette, she's wearing this pearl. And it's huge. It's a very big pearl, but not dissimilar to the Florentine in the sense that it's very large and it's a very good quality, but it's not what one would normally think of when you think of like an amazing pearl. And, but it was Marie Antoinette's. Unequivocally, this was hers. And it was cataloged, and I'm not going to say this correctly, but by an heir of hers that was by blood directly related to Marie Antoinette. And she cataloged all of the family jewelry and the jewelry from the, the Bourbon de Parma family. And we sold a, a probably 60 or so pieces from this family. Um, some of which were, were really lovely. Some others were just kind of small, like court jewels. And the pearl itself, the estimate on it was a million to a million and a half. And I remember looking at it and that was, about right in terms of what the word, what it would have been worth without all of the history to it. And 
as we're going to the auction, we were trying to think, okay, what we, we always do this before the sale. We speculate, what is it going to sell for? Who's going to buy it? Um, and we're always, you know, we, we want to be optimistic, but guardedly so. And so before the auction, we were thinking, okay, it was going to do well. There was certainly a lot of interest in it. There was a lot written about it. And at the end of the day, it sold for $32 million. And wow. it so far exceeded our expectations. And that was, as a pearl, it was probably worth a million and a half to $2 million. But when you think about Marie Antoinette's pearl, that's what then takes that leap from that price to $32 million. And so with the Florentine, it'd be something very similar. Um, you know, it, it's people, people crave that story. They crave that history to it. Um, and when you think about a diamond like that, it's, when you think about kind of what something is seen, it, it's just extraordinary. It's, it's all of, you know, modern European history seen in, in one stone. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's also what, what drew me to the, the Florentine much like this, the pearl is that um, these pieces of jewelry and, and objects in general can carry a lot of history to them. And that, you know, when it's one of, it's an, it's an atypical way, but I think a significant way that we can feel connected to the past is to, to have an object and to hold an object and to know that people in the past have held it even especially if it's with certainty you know to I mean did you get to to hold Marie Antoinette's pearl I did yeah and that that yeah. It, it it is there's something to be said for that you know it's and I I'm not personally a big believer in that kind of way of thinking but I think there are some people who are and whether you are or are not objectively it's just a very neat thing to hold something that has had that kind of history um, yeah and that I, mean, I think as, and, and, oh go on sorry no I was gonna say that that for me is the, the real joy of my job is that we get to have you know museum exhibitions all the time quote-unquote museum exhibitions that people get to hold things and, and feel things and touch things um, and you you there there is something we said for that kind of historical energy that you get in an object yeah you let me hold a a diamond that was, I don't think it had any history to it, but it was estimated to be between four and $5 million, which was, it's hard to wrap, wrap your brain around. It's so sort of, it's not abstract at all. And yet it's entirely abstract that this, you know, rock that you can fit into your palm is, is worth, you know, an inconceivable amount of money. But I think that's, you know, that, that idea and that concept of, value is something that you really hit on well in the book, which is that, okay, it's worth 3 million or 10 million or whatever, whatever the jeweler that it's, it's appraised at, or it's estimated at, whatever the case, the value, the in value of it is so much more than that. Um, whether that's like in your book, it's a, a family legacy um, or an historical legacy. You know, that's, that's really what, Value is not just the, the dollars and cents to it. Value is, is really what's imbued in the stone. Yeah, and what, what was interesting was when I uh, was researching for the book, I also talked to an estate lawyer. And she told me that the biggest, you know, I, I would have, I mean, she did tell me that all of her clients would make great characters that all sorts of families fight over inheritance, but that where the most, 
bitter fights come with inheritance is when uh, heirs place different value on the same object, right? So if, if someone, you know, sees a necklace as having monetary value, whereas another heir sees it as having, you know, emotional or familial value, those, you can't really reconcile those because they're different types of value. And so I was, I, I was very interested in that idea too, um, particularly surrounding a stone that has an, a, an indisputable financial value that could change these characters' lives. And yet, how do you weigh that against the value of it as their family history and also the value of it as, their, as a larger cultural history? Yeah, it's, as you're saying that, I was reminded of one of the first clients I ever worked with. This woman called and they had their, their mother had just passed away, two sisters, and they did not speak. And one of the sisters called and said, my mother passed away. We have loads of jewelry that belong to her. Can we bring it in and have you take a look at it? And, you know, typically we like to have images or something in advance so we know what we're seeing because we handle such a small sliver of the larger jewelry universe. Um, but, you know, her mother had just passed away. It was really emotional. I said, sure, just, just, just come on in. Why don't you bring 10 or so pieces that you feel would be worthy for us to take a look at? And we'll take a look and we'll discuss it. And she and her sister came in with two rolling suitcases and they literally were chock block full of stuff. And they just dumped it out on a the desk, these two sisters. And they stood at opposite sides of the room. They just did not speak. And most of it was costume jewelry. There were a few gold chains here and there. But as I was, I mean, literally there's a mound of jewelry on this table. And at the bottom of it was their mother's, I think it's like a 10 carat engagement ring. And we sold it for, I think, $50,000 or something like that. And it wasn't a particularly great diamond. But what it did is it forced these sisters into a room together. And because the mother had left it to both of them, and as I tell clients all the time, it's a lot easier to split money than a diamond. But because their mother left it to both of them, they had to make a mutual decision on what to do with this diamond. And I received an email from them after the sale saying, you know, this is hugely helpful, thank you, but more importantly, we're talking to each other again. And it's, it's amazing how those kinds of experiences can bring a family together. Yeah, and that was a big part of what I wanted to have happen in the book, that, that this uh, thing that often tears families apart could be uh, the impetus for this family coming together. One of the things that happened with my first novel, The Bookshop of Yesterdays, which I wasn't expecting at all, because that book is about an estrangement as well, was that people were writing, people wrote, uh, readers wrote to me afterwards to tell me that my book inspired them to reach out to people from their families that they were, they were estranged from. And I sort of forgot, because you know, when you're writing a book, you get so into the mechanics of it and making sure that you're effectively telling a story. At least for me, I, I kind of forgot that in telling an effective story, it can affect people. Um, so that was probably the, the best compliment I got on my first book was that, that it inspired people to, to make amends with their family. And uh, I hope that you know, for some readers, it can, this, the imperfects can provide something similar. Well, I, I think that it will. I mean, it's, it's, you're talking about these really thorny legacy kinds of things that 
it, once they get addressed, once you can address them and talk about them, you know, I think you can, it really helps bring out what's important in a family. Yeah. So I have to ask, um, because I know that you and I talked about the auction process, or I have to tell you, I suppose, that I was really happy with the way you portrayed the scene at the auction house, because that is, um, that's exactly how we would go about doing things. Um, and when I started that chapter, um, I looked at my wife and I said, uh Oh, I really hope this goes the way that I wanted to go. Um, but it was great. And I think that you, you, one of the things that you captured really well um, that I think that we working at the auction house don't think about very often is, uh, and you had Ashley, one of the, the grandchildren going in to meet with this woman, Georgina, which clearly was inspired by bearded quig ruining uh, in LA. <laughs> um, but uh, she was really intimidated going in. Um, and that's one of the things I think we really fight against is people being intimidated to come in. We want people to come in, we want to be welcoming to them. And that, that you hit that exactly right. You hit that nail right on the head. Oh, well, that's good to know. Yeah, it was, it's, uh, you know, because I can very clearly isolate the parts in the book that, that you helped me with and that uh, the Gemological Institute helped me with and the various um, cultural heritage lawyers, like there's parts that were inspired by each of that. And so it's, it's also nerve wracking. Well, one, to give a book to somebody that you've met, particularly that's helped you with it and be like, oh, I hope, I hope they like it. Um, but also to, you know, write, obviously the scene, you know, the, the uh, room was a little bit modeled off of when I came to your offices in, in Century City and saw the Magnificent Jewels, I think I'm saying that right, collection. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> you know, the, what's interesting, so Ashley in that moment, Ashley had a, a successful career before she got married and had kids in New York. And so this woman, Georgina, represents everything she kind of uh, gave up voluntarily in deciding to uh, stay at home and raise her kids. So she sort of intimidated, uh, from that perspective, as well as the fact that she's, you know, kind of when she goes to talk to Georgina about this stone, she's doing it without telling her family. So there's a lot of, of emotion wrapped up in that. And I think the ways in which she projects uh, insecurities onto Georgina are not coming from Georgina in any way being unwelcome, but it was really fun to, you know, both that scene and then later in the book, there's a civil forfeiture case, which is, um, it's actually kind of a dry type of lawsuit because everything's done on paper, but it's, it's, and most people know about if to the extent people know about forfeitures that, that aren't lawyers, it happens a lot with drug cases. Um, so the, it's, it's unusual, but it does happen with cultural property when you know that a crime was committed, but you don't know who it was committed by. And so, um, the federal government will seize a, seize a property, which in this case is the Florentine diamond. Uh, and I don't think I'm giving too much away by saying that, but it's, you know, it's, it's fun to write these scenarios, these kind of what if scenarios based on experiences that experts like you have had. So uh, I think, you know, it's very important to me in my book that 
in, in all my books that I'm as accurate as possible. Uh, and so I think when I came to talk to you, I asked you, you know, what, if you got the Florentine, like, what would you do with it? And uh, it was, you know, it, it worked out well for the plot that Georgina kind of stepped away and was like, we, you know, without a clear provenance, we, we can't take on this stone. Um, but it, it, I think a lot of times, and you would probably know better than I would, in popular culture, there, there's probably a lot of mistakes surrounding how um, stones are handled, particularly um, with, with auction houses and stuff like that. Probably not just stones, probably art in general. So it meant a lot to me to be able to get it right. Yeah, no, I, I, I had this huge sigh of relief. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was sitting on the couch and my wife is right next to me and, you know, you, you have a young child, I have a young child, you know, when it's like nine o'clock rolls around and you're basically fried and we were both kind of falling asleep. And I said, oh, thank goodness. Um, but you're right. You know, I think there's this, there's this idea that, um, I think that diamonds have engendered this idea in the popular culture that it's just kind of the wild west that people go around and you've got some shady guy in the corner, like pulling his jacket back and has got loads of diamonds. I mean, that, that's just, it's it, this very funny image that you can kind of do whatever you want. And we, you know, as a company, especially once as public as we are, you know, I talk about Marie Antoinette's Pearl that was splashed on the news that was all over newspapers. You know, it was, there was a lot of publicity about it. We, we have responsibility, not just a legal responsibility and an ethical responsibility, but we also have a cultural responsibility. Um, and the amount of research that we do for provenance is extensive um, because we want to make sure that we get it right. And not just for the owner, but also for the purchaser, but also, again, for this, this kind of broader cultural responsibility that we're all beholden to. Um, and so I, again, officially very much appreciated the fact that <laughs> you handled that scene the way that you did, because that's, that's absolutely how we do business. Yeah, well, it's nice to hear that. Yeah, one of the things that I think thought was so interesting as I was reading about cultural heritage law is that the most famous cases are about Nazi looted art. And um, I think that for the broader public, it's easier to, with those kinds of cases, like it was, it was artwork that belonged to a family, it was unlawfully taken from them, or it was a forced sale. And then most of it, most of the Nazi looted art has ended up in actually American museums. Uh, and so it's, it's easy to see, I think from an outside perspective, how that family Uh oh hello hello hey Hi. amy yeah can you hear me hey sorry yeah hold on one second okay oh it's saying my connection. i'm not sure what happened there I, I i lost you for a second okay should i do you know where i was no you you, you were saying something really interesting <laughs> you were like on a roll about um how most Nazi looted art is end up in American museums and then you cut out. Okay, I'll, I'll pick up from there. Yeah, so a lot of, so most, most of the Nazi looted art has actually ended up in American museums. And while there are these bigger questions of what, you know, what value can we place on 
uh, art being public as opposed to to being private, there's a clear, it's easy to see how a family was robbed of their property when it comes to those cases. And so what interested me about the Florentine diamond was, and, and how it uh, appears in my book as an inheritance of a family is it's kind of the opposite of that, where this family is trying to prove that the diamond lawfully belongs to them, uh, whereas it's clearly a piece of uh, cultural history in Austria and debatably also in Italy. And so you sort of have the opposite of what happened with, with these really famous, um, like the Klimt painting, uh, these really mm -hmm. famous cases about looted art. And so I, I thought that that was an interesting way to explore it, this relationship um, between, you know, what one of the characters at one point even reflects on the fact that if, if the family inherits this diamond, and I think you've, you've talked to me about this with, with very valuable diamonds in general, even if they don't have this rich history, if an individual owns them, they're just gonna end up in a safe. Whereas if they are, uh, awarded to a country or to a museum, they're somewhere where the masses can really appreciate them. And so, you know, that's this added component beyond who sort of lawfully or rightfully something should belong to, what value should we place on it belonging to the public? Yeah, and that was something you handled, I think, really elegantly um, that oftentimes gets handled just kind of not half-heartedly, but just kind of gets tossed aside is this idea of ownership. And it's really complex, you know, and it's one thing where you have, you mentioned World War II and Nazi looted art. Um, you know, you think of that, that trove of pieces that belong to um, Gerlitz in Germany. You know, that's very clear that this was, this was looted. These belong to families. Let's get them back to families and let them make that decision. But you know, in, in your book, The Florentine, it's, it's really complicated. And trying to think of to whom this kind of piece belongs, historically, culturally, and legally, is, it's, a, it's a thorny issue. It's a, and I thought that that, that complexity is, is ignored in a lot of more mass media. And again, we, when you think about, you do think about World War II, where it's pretty cut and dry. You know, you've got a bad guy and you have a victim. And it's all about making amends to that victim as it should be. Yeah. Well, one of the things I really appreciated uh, about getting to come and, and see the Sotheby's collection is that it is open to the public. And so that before it goes on auction and is sold, people who could never afford to um, bid on it can at least see it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we we love when people come and so when you when you came i had a great time showing you around um because and especially with with jewelry um and this is uh, as an aside a kind of passion project for myself is that it, it's not really in museums in the united states um whereas in europe there is a tradition of having jewelry on display um which is largely a byproduct of monarchies no longer existing and the jewels passing to the state and then being put in museums like at the Louvre, for instance. Um, but in the U.S., it's just not been something that has been in museums. And it should be because jewelry is an art form. And you're, the way you talk about the, the brooch that was made for Helen, it, it emphasizes that. You know, it, it's really an art form with not just artisans creating things. And you, you said you, you do metalwork yourself. Like, this is not easy. Um, but it's really, th these great jewelers are 
artists in their own right and their work should be celebrated in museums just like the great painters and sculptors of our time. Yeah, the brooch was really fun to design. So I teamed up with uh, <laughs> the li a librarian at the Gemological Institute and we went, I was trying to do something that wasn't, wasn't accurate or possible and she kind of kept talking me away from, away from it. Um, because I wanted, initially I wanted this brooch to really look like costume jewelry. And the main character still does think it's costume jewelry just because she can't imagine that her grandmother owned a valuable brooch. But the, the people at the Gemological Institute kept telling me, they're like, nobody who knows anything about diamonds will ever see this diamond and, and think that it's not a real stone. Uh, even though the Florentine diamond is cut such that it doesn't like sparkle the way the way we think of diamonds sparkling now. Um, but so it was, so we went back and forth on designs for a while and I actually did, I think I've been confusing people a little bit in these interviews. I don't have a physical version of the brooch, but I have a rendering of it. Um, and it was really fun to design it and to, to design it in a way that I could plant clues for the story while also uh, making it, um, historically accurate as a 1950s brooch. So that was a really, really fun part of, of the book. Um, and one thing you said before reminded me, and just as another like fun fact I learned, I went to Vienna while I was researching and uh, at, the, uh, at the treasury um, in Vienna, they had the crown jewels. And when I was there, I noticed that a couple of cases were empty and so afterwards I talked to a historian in Vienna and he told me that those, I had assumed that the jewels were on loan, <clears throat> but he told me that those cases are actually always empty because they represent various crown jewels that the Habsburgs stole at the fall of the empire uh, that have never been returned. And that the cases will remain empty until theoretically one day somebody brings those stones back. And it's a speculation then that they're part of the sort of Habsburg family diaspora somewhere in the world? I think, you know, the Habsburgs uh, had a lot of money troubles after the empire fell. So they sold off pretty much everything. So that's one of the, you know, one of the things or a lot about the Florentine is it's a lot of people think it was stolen when the Habsburgs fled from the Habsburgs who, you know, also stole it from Austria or the empire, because uh, the, the crown jewels did not belong to the Habsburg family, they belonged to the crown um, and to the empire. So uh, the stones that they did keep, they sold most, I, so it's unclear if, if the Florentine was one of those stones that they sold after, or if somebody had stolen it from them. Interesting. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it's, I feel like you've you've kind of just started down this road of these interesting jewelry mysteries, um, and that there this this may be the beginning of something for you, whether you intended it to or not. I mean, I find it fascinating, uh, and it does make me want to to look up other stones. There was an article recently in the um, New York Times, it was a few months ago, about these surfers in Florida who stole some stones uh, from the Natural History Museum in New York. Did you read that article? 
Yeah, I, 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 and they're, are they making a documentary about it? Oh, I was going to say, book? it sounds yeah, like a movie. I, I, I saw, I saw something to it, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's so many, you know, there's so many interesting stories. And then if something has been stolen, uh, and it come, I mean, that becomes part of the, the lore of the stone, right? Or the history of the stone and that that can actually give it value too. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, jewelry heists obviously are are things that I think people are are titillated by, if you will. Um, you know, without really thinking about the fact that then then what happens to them. Um, and it, it's really interesting because people. I wonder if my colleagues at Sotheby's get these kinds of questions. People ask us all the time, what kind of security we have, what kind of insurance we have, how do we protect ourselves from these things, and. You know, we, we are super secure and we have guards, we have vaults, we have all these various things. But, you know, when you read about jewelry heist, it's always the, the thieves who are kind of, you know, lionized in a way because it's almost this cat and mouse game. Uh, but then what they don't talk about is what then do you do with it? And then you're, you're you know, like if, if someone were to, the Florentine frame was a great example. If that were to be stolen, for instance, then, then what do you do with it? How, how, how would you go about selling it on the market? Um, because these things, even though they're, there's no registry necessarily of them, they're very identifiable. Um, and uh, it, it creates for like, interesting stories in popular culture that when you get down into the, the pragmatism of them, what do you do with it? it? It's a bit more complicated. Yeah, and I was interested in those questions, but I mean, I guess for the Florentine, I should say that most people think that it was sold uh, in Geneva in the early 80s, that it was cut down from 137 carats to I think something in the 70 carat range um, to mask its identity. And I think a lot of people assume that that yellow diamond was the Florentine because it had to have been cut from a larger diamond and there weren't really any other options besides besides the, the Florentine. But you know, one of the reasons I thought about that because there's so there's so much fun uh, you know, more surrounding this idea of, of the black market and stolen diamonds and stuff like that. And I sort of stayed away from it because I do think a lot of that has been romanticized. And I also think it would have been much harder to, uh, much more challenging for me as a writer to know that that was accurate. Um, I didn't try <laughs> to find any diamond thieves to talk to or people who who work in in sort of the shadier corners of of the industry uh and and i think that there's i probably could have had a lot of fun with that but it was really important to me that the story be feel accurate um, especially to people within your world and also uh, within the law where if this diamond resurfaced what realistically would happen to it Yeah, and that's, I mean, the reality is that's a, a more engaging kind of story anyway, is then you're, then you're really getting into these really complex issues that are just, they're not just cut and dry. Yeah, and I think they work well. For me, it works really well. I mean, the title of the book, The Imperfects, uh, my editor actually came up with it because um, I was telling her that one of the things that really interested me about about diamonds that I hadn't known before is that the way that they're, I mean, I guess they don't call them imperfections, they call them clarity characteristics, but that diamonds are, are identified by their unique qualities. Um, and usually I think when we think unique qualities in a stone, that's really an imperfection. Um, 
And that to me worked really well with a family that what makes a family unique is the ways in which people's relationships and they themselves are kind of imperfect. So as I was, you know, so I think like all of these questions that are coming up about provenance and uh, you know, the law surrounding these stones and, and what you do with them works in really nice parallels uh, with stories and narratives within family and, and how you, you know, ownership of, of your own family's history and things like that. So it, it ended up being a really rich venue for me for telling a, what is fundamentally a story about a family. Yeah, and I think one that at least, to, in my opinion, uh, you did a great job and it was really, really enjoyable read. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, well, great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's really oh, fun. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm trying to think if there's something like really fun, a fun little note we could end on. But I think, I think we did a good job. Good. Well, I, I, this is, this is, like I said, uh, this is a really a lot of fun for me too. Um, because usually it's talking to journalists about per carat prices on diamonds and, uh, where I think the market is going. Um, which is interesting actually is we're bizarrely, uh, we're having a lot of sales right now and it's, they're doing very, very well. And I think part of it is because we have a very engaged audience, but part of it is that it's a, it's a diversion for people. And at this time where, there's just all this awful stuff going on. People are looking for something positive and hopeful and happy. Uh, and so they're, they're buying jewelry. Now, mind you, these people are also giving tons of money to various causes and doing lots of philanthropic things. But I think jewelry provides a very happy outlet for people. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's something, you know, particularly, I, I still have it recording, by the way, just so you know. Um, I think particularly with, with the type of jewelry that the caliber of jewelry that, that someone like Sotheby sells, they're pieces that you know you can pass on to your family. Um, or I mean, ideally. And so I think that that, that idea that it's, it's something that, you, that has value and that you can, will continue to build the sort of uh, emotional and, and, and narrative value on, I think is important to people right now too. We're actually, we're going to be selling in June, um, you know, speaking of family legacies, a bracelet that originally belonged to a man, Gana Walska. And Gana Walska was a, a Polish opera singer um, who ended up in the States and actually brought her family over from Poland after World War II. Um, and, but this bracelet was bought from Cartier in the in 1920s. And it she sold her collection through Sotheby's in the, the 60s, I think, to fund Lotus Land in Santa Barbara, which is this beautiful botanical garden. Um, and there are some pieces that were not sold in that sale. And this one is actually being sold, again, to benefit Lotus Land, um, which is, you know, a, a family legacy of this particular piece. And it's just kind of nice how it all comes full circle. Yeah. It's nice. So are, I'm just going to ask you, um, so how are you doing auctions online? Is that how it's working right now? Yeah, it's, it's online only. And we've been, we've been moving toward that platform in terms of just increasing our online sales for the past four or five years. And we had a sale originally slated for March 26th to get started. 
which was right as things were, were closing March 26th. So we had a sale that was going on right as the market was completely tanking and the world was totally falling apart. And it did pretty well. And now that we can't have live auctions, we can't have exhibitions, um, you certainly can't have people coming in to look at jewelry and then pass it on to somebody else. We've moved a lot of things to an online only format and they've, so they've been really successful and people are really engaging with us, with our platform, with the jewelry. And uh, I think our buyers are, are looking for those kinds of hopeful and happy diversions. And for our sellers, uh, oftentimes these are, whether they're estates or they're collectors who are just not having that lifestyle anymore, this money is going a long way um, and is really very meaningful for their lives. That's great. Um, well, I guess, yeah, I think that's probably a good, a good place, good note to end on. Um, so great. thank you so much for, for coming on with me to talk about the imperfects and talk about uh, diamonds and gemstones um, for Skylight. And I will stop recording now. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.